Hello, and welcome to the Galaxy Moonbeam Night Sight. We're the Retro Talk Network, where we talk about anything having to do with nostalgia, radio, television, movies. If you plugged it in, turned it on, listened to it, or watched it, we talk about it here. I'm Mike. I'm Smitty. And I'm Ian. We'd love to have you take a look at our website. Our website is at www.galaxymoonbeamnightsight.com. That's galaxymoonbeamnightsight.com. S-I-T-E dot com. We love emails. Keep those emails coming. You can reach us by email at galaxymoonbeamnightsite at gmail dot com. Galaxymoonbeamnightsite. Remember, that's S-I-T-E at gmail dot com. Well, we've got a pretty interesting show, and this is our Truth in Truth segment. Smitty, you've got a great piece coming up. Why don't you talk to us about to tell the truth. Okay, Mike, I'd be very happy to do that. We are going to talk about another one of the game shows made famous by the team of Goodson Todman. Today we are going to talk about To Tell the Truth. (music) To Tell the Truth began on CBS television in December of 1956 and was seen on CBS until September of 1968. The host of these network shows was Bud Collier, who previously in his career had performed on radio, notably as the voice of Superman, and in early television had been host of another game show, Beat the Clock. Contestants for the show were brought out in groups of three. Each person claimed to be the same individual. Bud Collier would read an affidavit about the person all three contestants were claiming to be. There usually was something interesting or unusual about the person, either in their work, life experiences, or activities. Only one person in the trio of contestants was the actual person whose life was detailed in the affidavit. The other two people were imposters. All three would be questioned by a panel of four people in a certain amount of time, and it was up to the panel to decide who was the real person and which two contestants were imposters. The panel would vote as to who they thought was the actual person described in the affidavit. The real person described in the affidavit would rise, and the two imposters would tell everyone what their real names were and what they did for a living. Wrong guesses by any of the panel members were worth a cash prize, which all three contestants would split. Who were some of the panel members in the CBS run-up to tell the truth? Well, there was beautiful Polly Bergen. Ian, you remember her, don't you? I remember her quite well. (laughs) It's funny you mentioned Polly Bergen because I remember an incident once where during the show she was asking the three panelists a question and they weren't answering it and Bud answered it. So later on when they were doing the who who did you vote for, Polly Bergen wrote down Bud. (laughs) (laughs) That's funny. That's cute. (laughs) Well, some of the other panel members uh, that were on to tell the truth were High Gardner, Kitty Carlisle, Ralph Bellamy, Tom Poston, Orson Bean, and Peggy Cass. Bud Collier, in his role as host of To Tell the Truth, was more relaxed and somewhat more avuncular than he had been on Beat the Clock, where he himself was actually running around the stage just as much as the contestants. On To Tell the Truth, he would walk onto the set after being introduced and would take his seat at the MC's desk where he would conduct the show. At the show's end, he would rise along with the panel to meet and mingle with the contestants on the set. 
as the closing credits were read and sponsor announcements were, were done by Johnny Olson. Another well-remembered thing about Bud Collier was his wording at the end of the round when the votes had been cast, and he would ask the real individual to stand up. Now, let's assume for a moment that Ian would have been a contestant, not to tell the truth. Bud Collier would have phrased it this way. Would the real Ian Rose please stand up? Sometimes one or the other of the imposters would appear to get ready to stand, but would sit back down, this in an effort to throw the panel and the audience off for a few seconds before the real individual stood up. In Bud Collier's parting words to contestants, along with thanking them for being on the show, he would very often say, God bless you. Bud Collier was a religious man, and his words showed it. Another well-remembered saying came at the very end of the program when Bud Collier would remind everyone to tell the truth as he pointed his finger and smiled at the camera. To Tell the Truth aired in various weeknight time slots in its years on CBS. In addition, it aired on CBS Daytime from June of 1962 to September of 1968. On some of the later shows, 100 members of the studio audience were allowed to cast their vote for the person they thought was telling the truth. The results of the audience vote were revealed after the panel had cast their votes, and this allowed audience members to participate in the show and have their votes tallied. To Tell the Truth was one of the first game shows on CBS to be seen in color in the 1960s as the networks began airing more and more of their shows in color. In the fall of 1969, To Tell the Truth returned to television in syndication, this time with Gary Moore as MC. Sadly, in that same fall of 1969, Bud Collier passed away. The new version of To Tell the Truth kept two of the original panelists, Kitty Carlisle and Peggy Cass. The third regular panelist was Bill Cullen. The fourth person on the panel was a guest panelist who changed from show to show. This new version of To Tell the Truth had the same rules and was played in the same manner as the original. The set had been updated, changing to a more psychedelic-looking set that mirrored the times, and then this changed into a more modern and decorative set. This new version of To Tell the Truth aired from 1969 to 1977, and all through this run, Gary Moore was the host. I remember watching To Tell the Truth with Gary Moore when I was a kid. I enjoyed the show, watching the panel interact while attempting to identify the real person, and I enjoyed the theme music for the show, which had been updated from the original show. Now, if you have any memories of To Tell the Truth, either the early CBS version or the later syndicated version, drop us a line here at Galaxy Moonbeam Nightsight and tell us about it. We would love to hear your story. Truthfully, that was a really interesting story. I remember watching that show in the afternoons, especially on summer vacation. There was an entire afternoon lineup of that type of show, wasn't there, Smitty? There was. There were a lot of game shows, and they were good quality game shows. Both CBS and NBC had a weekly lineup of shows. NBC did. They had uh, The Match Game. They had Truth or Consequences, Price is Right, several other shows right now that don't come to mind. CBS also had... To Tell the Truth, and they had their own game shows, which they carried also. And To Tell the Truth followed the uh, weekday lineup of the CBS soaps. Right. It so was, it was about break. 2, 2.30. Exactly. Yeah. It was a break in the middle of the soap opera block on CBS. So that was 
kind of a neat thing. And the programming, the way that the the shows were placed in the schedule, really, were very novel. You know, you had several hours, perhaps two hours of soap operas, and you'd have something fun like To Tell the Truth, and you'd go back to more soap operas. And didn't To Tell the Truth, didn't they garner some Emmy Awards? I believe they did. They did, yeah. And, you know, it's interesting that these shows, and on the previous show, of course, we talked about What's My Line. These shows were so simple, yet they were so good. Uh, they stand the test of time. I, I'm sorry that they're very basic. And very even basic. the guest panelists, they came from various areas of the entertainment right. industry. Peg, Peggy Cass. Peggy Cass, Kitty Carlisle. Orson Bean. Yes. Orson Bean, now, was he a comedian? Orson Bean, I believe, was more of an actor. Uh, uh, I'm trying to think. Orson Bean was a, um, oh, gosh, some kind of a celebrity. He, he did appear, I know he was on one Twilight Zone. So we did that sort of thing. Yes, I believe that was the episode with Mr. Beavis. That's right. Yes. Was, Beavis. With, with, with Rod Sterling, you got either Mr. Beavis or Mr. Beavis. That's yes. right, one of the, the two. And Wimpy was either an M, either Beavis or a Beavis. So that was the Wimpy character with Rod Sterling. Anyway, just a side <laughs> note before I get way off the track. Orson Bean, wasn't he? He tend to be the wisecracker. He was the wisecracker. Okay. And there are a number of clips on YouTube of To Tell the Truth, if any of our friends want to see them. And Orson Bean is sort of the, the wisecracky guy. Tom Poston is sort of the very low-key, humorous guy. Peggy Cass is, you know, coming in from a different direction. And Kitty Carlisle is a very proper... And, and Paulie e. Bergen was the same way, very, very proper, asking the questions. So, so these game shows, they subscribe to their own formula, too, as far as how the casts or the panelists, rather, were selected. Mm-hmm. It was probably uh, Goodson Todman. I'm sure everything was formula. They took what worked well, and they stuck to the formula. But even putting the panelists up, uh, that reflected some type of uh, formula by the producer. I think it did. Creators. I think it was just a good mix of people mix. on the panel. <laughs> yeah. So, anyway, uh, that's fondly remembered. So, again, if anybody has memories of To Tell the Truth, we'd love to hear from them. We're going to turn now to Ian, who's going to talk to us about more television. But this is, goes back even earlier than To Tell the Truth. The golden age of television. Some of it, anyway, passes in review. Ian Rose has more. You know, I was alive back then, but not old enough to appreciate it. I turned eight when Disneyland opened in 1955. But thanks to recordings, I've caught up. A bit on TV's golden age right here. The Criterion Collection has come out with eight original shows on DVD from 1953 to 1958. And I'd like to review three right here. Patterns, Requiem for a Heavyweight, and No Time for Sergeants. Interesting that all of these three original TV dramas were turned into movies. First, starting off with Patterns. Written by Rod Serling, pre-Twilight Zone. Patterns is a stark look at high-rise big business. Sitting at the peak is Everett Sloan, playing a ruthless boss. He brings in rising star Richard Kiley from Cincinnati. Ed Begley plays an exec in his fading phase. All three would repeat their roles in the movie version, except for Kiley, who was replaced by Van Heflin. Probably better box office. TV or movie, I like them both. Acting is fine all around, except that Everett Sloan dominates. How can't he with such a delicious, hard-boiled role? Dislike him, yes. Hate him, no. Because the law of the jungle, survival of the fittest, which he refers to, should be applied to him if he can't cut it anymore. So he believes in the rules he follows, even if applied to himself. The TV version appeared on the Kraft Television Theater, and quite frankly, the story ends a bit abruptly, apparently due to time constraints, The movie version had uh, more time for ending, which wraps up with a surprise, or as it's referred to, anti-cliché. Originally called Patterns of Power, Patterns was good, very good. How good? 
In notes by Ron Simon in the Criterion Collection, he said, Due to pleas from the critics, this program was brought back a month later, when many Golden Age programs got only one airing. This could be Everett Sloan's best role. Patterns, bring your own pink liquid. I remember reading somewhere that uh, positive reviews, of course, went to Rod Serling, the writer, but some were wondering, listen to this, was this a fluke? Could Serling do it again? These are questions that are now hard to believe, considering the super success he had with the five-year series The Twilight Zone a few years later. Not only creating, but he wrote the bulk of TZ episodes for that multi-award-winning series. Not only that, but at the time of Patterns, Serling had already written 70, seven zero scripts for live television. The following year, 1956, Playhouse 90 presented his Requiem for a Heavyweight, and any doubt about Serling disappeared. The heavyweight is Jack Palance, who uh, plays Mountain, an over-the-hill uh, fighter who can't seem to get out of uh, the profession, and he is pathetic. You feel sorry for this guy. You nearly want to start crying. Jack Palance, by the way, remember he played in uh, 1953 Shane, the villain, a man you couldn't wait to see die, plays a completely sympathetic character here, by contrast. Heavyweight also brings together the father and son, Keenan Wynn and Ed Wynn, it was later revealed that after casting and rehearsing, Ed Wynn, the powers that be, had some doubts about Ed. Ed Wynn was not taking his role all that seriously. They even earmarked an actor to replace him, but Ed Wynn came through. The story of that story became another presentation about four years later called The Man in the Funny Suit, and Gilbert Smith and I will talk a bit more about it, along with Mike, you too, Mike Bragg. We'll okay. all talk about it. It was made into a movie with Anthony Quinn, playing Mountain. I've seen the movie, too. Ending is different here, folks. Just wanted you to know. And again, in notes from uh, Rod Simon, the 1957 BBC heavyweight version starred as Mountain, Sean Connery. I think he was shaken and stirred. And finally, in my three reviews, before there was Matlock, before there was the Andy Griffith Show, before there was a face in the crowd, there was no time for sergeants. It was Andy Griffith's first TV appearance, if you exclude his monologue on Ed Sullivan. Golden Age shows were generally dramas. This was a comedy, an hour long, on the United States Steel Hour with a studio audience. Again, notes by Ron Simon says, As a point of reference, Gomer Pyle, USMC, United States Marine Corps, was a knockoff of this show. So the Golden Age lived on later in series television. The difference is that in Sargent's Griffith was in the early stages of the Air Force, and he both narrated and appeared in the show. As Will Stockdale from Georgia, he was naive and friendly, but the more he tried to help people, the more they got into trouble. The laugh started slowly. Later during the show, I was laughing out loud. Griffith's southern drawl, he himself came from North Carolina, made him quite different than many of the others seen on 1950s TV. As good as he was, would he be versatile in other roles? That's what New York Times was asking. Uh, the later movie, A Face in the Crowd, as the egomaniacal TV personality, and his own show with his name on it, proved his versatility. In the Andy Griffith Show, starting in 1960, he toned down the accent and the naivete. No Time for Sergeants, a Golden Age TV comedy, went on to Broadway, then the big screen, then the small screen. In supporting casts on Broadway, Griffith appeared with Don Knotts. In the Criterion Collection, in an interview in 1981, Griffith said, I've had a real good life. I'm grateful to Will Stockdale for it. I'm Ian Rose. Thank you, Ian, very much. That's good stuff, uh, Ian. Very good. Very interesting. Rod Serling intrigues me. The entire magic 
of the mind of the man. You mentioned Everett Sloan. Actually, he appeared in, in a Twilight Zone episode, didn't he? The the slot machine episode. That's the one. Yes. Is he Franklin? The first, the first season? Yes. Everett Sloan. And let's talk a little bit about the man in the funny suit. I had not even heard that that existed. That was an episode of, I believe, Desilu Playhouse, wasn't it, Ian? I think you're right. Okay. 1960. Yeah, because yeah. I know Playhouse that Desi... 90, I think. Well, this is the, the Requiem for Heavyweight okay. was an episode of right. uh, Playhouse 90. This is the man in the funny suit. Desi Arnaz did the introduction. Just very, very briefly, this was sort of a behind-the-scenes story of what went on while they were doing, while they were rehearsing for Requiem for Heavyweight. Rod Serling and Ralph Nelson, who was the director of Playhouse 90, thought that Ed Wynn was not going to cut it because Ed Wynn was just, he'd go into his mannerism and, and his clown and his clowning around. He'd explain to people about Ed Wynn himself. He was called the perfect fool. Ed Wynn was called the perfect fool, right? He was more, I guess, of a visual comedian and a silly uh, as opposed to uh, not quite as sophisticated as the Times. Right. Were. He was more of a clown. Yeah. And it was a novel idea to bring him in to play this dramatic role on live television. His son, Keenan was very worried that his father was going to make a fool of himself. And one person, Martin Manulis, who was the producer of Requiem for a Heavyweight, had a lot of faith in him. Anyway, this production of The Man with the Funny Suit goes into quite a bit of detail, showing what went on behind the scenes. And I thought it was quite interesting. Not all of the information that was portrayed was flattering to Ed Wynn. In fact, a lot of it could have been downright embarrassing. I have to give him a lot of credit for going along with that story and actually playing himself in the story. And you consider this was only four years after the original production of uh, Rec Room for a Heavyweight. Yes. 1956, and this show was 1960. 60, right. And it just details all the, I mean, it really is just warts and all showing what went on behind the scenes that... There were people that did not want him on the show. They were rehearsing another character. Ned Glass mm-hmm. was being rehearsed secretly to do Edwin's role. Ed wouldn't learn his lines. Ed wouldn't learn his lines. And he, and he futzed around with some of his old cronies. Right. Or exactly. where they should be rehearsing, exactly. you know, things like that. Right. Was right. he that way in real life? Was he a bumbler and the constant, consummate clown? He was a consummate clown. I don't believe he was a bumbler. I think, yeah. that, I think that by this time he was getting... One thing that came out, Ian, and maybe you picked up on this too, Edwin was, the word delusional is too strong. He was still thinking that he had this tremendous audience out there mm-hmm. from the perfect fool days, from the radio from the radio days from vaudeville. From vaudeville, yeah. And it wasn't the case anymore. And Keenan tried to tell him, Dad, this is, it, it's all changed now. And But anyway, in the end, he got it together. He got it together. He did this live 90-minute Playhouse 90 Requiem for a heavyweight, and he did it flawlessly. And it's funny, and I guess to many people, they didn't realize all of the intrigue that was going on backstage. There was a lot of intrigue going on, and if anybody can get... Ian was fortunate enough to get us a copy of The Man in the Funny Suit. If any of you can get a copy of it, I would highly, highly recommend it. In fact, I would, I'd watch Requiem for a heavyweight first. Watch that first, then watch The Man in the Funny Suit. Interesting that uh, later on during the Twilight Zone, Edwin... Uh, guested on one of the episodes so he came back later on he did and apparently he expanded his role of dramatics he was in the diary of anne frank correct that's true yeah and i believe he was in one other at least one other dramatic role and i can't remember my mind is not uh... as a point of reference i think diary of anne frank was late 50s okay it might have come after wasn't wasn't he one of the 12 angry men no no he was not no 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 Mm -hmm. But Edwin, certainly uh, a versatile character, and he really 
He really came through in the pinch on that one. So. I guess in his day, in the early days of radio, in the early 30s, he was uh, quite popular. He was very popular. He was the Texaco fire chief, the perfect fool. That's right. Yes. There. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, but anyway, Ian, thank you very much for that information on the golden age of TV. We're going to pause right now for our retromercial, and we'll be back with more of the Galaxy Moonbeam Night Sight right after this. It's the biggest party in the Southland, Disneyland's 7th Annual Gala New Year's Eve Party. Ring out the old, swing in the new at the happiest place on Earth. There's dancing to five great bands, the Elliott Brothers, Cave Ellen the Spacemen, Firehouse 5 Plus 2, Young Men from New Orleans, and the Shelly Man Quintet. Plus, special attraction, a New Year's Eve hootenanny. All Disneyland New Year's Eve party tickets just $6.50 on sale beginning December 26th at any Desmond's or Wallach's Music City stores, as well as the Disneyland box office. Tickets are limited. Get yours now while they last. This one low price includes the big evening of fun, dancing, and entertainment. Admission to Disneyland, unlimited use of all Disneyland attractions, free hats, and noisemakers. Get your tickets early for Disneyland's Gala New Year's Eve party. Wow, what an interesting commercial. And there's a couple of things I want to call out about that. First of all, not the $6.50 admission fee to Disneyland, but that commercial is from late December of 1963. And it's rather poignant for me because I'm thinking that a little over a month earlier than this commercial was aired, President John F. Kennedy was assassinated in Dallas. And here we were a little over a month later. The official mourning period had been over. And here we were moving into a new year, 1964. I think it just is indicative of the country moving forward. I think even President Kennedy himself, if he would have had the chance, would have said, you need to move forward and, and keep going. Uh, Mike, Ian, do you have any thoughts on that? Uh, that probably was not a sellout event that year. I know uh, th- those were very dark, good, sad days. Good point. Good point. Very dark, good sad point. days. I remember the the evening. I was in I was in elementary school when the news came in of President Kennedy's assassination, and I believe for the rest of the week, several well, several days all the way through the weekend, all the movie theaters were dark. Mm-hmm. Uh, all live events. I lived in L.A. All the uh, plays and all entertainment was was stopped i remember the uh, am radio stations for several days probably close to a week you would just you would get news on the hour but all the other time it was classical music very sad mm-hmm. uh, funeral dirges and classical music very sad time mm-hmm. very touching time right. and i remember regardless of which side of the political aisle you sat on people were just in tears and and, and crushed, and uh, how could this happen here in America to our top American? I, I remember it just like it was yesterday. There's uh, been a story that's emerged in recent times, and I kind of doubt that's, what do they say, we doubt its veracity. We mean we doubt if it's true. And this is the one that I've heard about the Beatles who came over in, was it February of 64? Right, 64, yeah. Mm-hmm. And the story that, that I heard within the last few years was, and what the Beatles did was uplift America after the assassination of Kennedy. I'm saying to myself, I think by February we'd gotten, I don't want to say we'd gotten completely over it, but, you know, you'd come to grips with it. I, I don't, I've never drawn that conclusion, although it, it makes a good story. It's an interesting point, yeah, and it's one that maybe we we will address in a future show. We will 
talk about those dark days of President Kennedy's assassination, how the media reacted, and that'll be upcoming later on this year. But right now, let's talk about a more funnier topic. Mike is going to talk to us about a month's <laughs> four-track tape player that yeah, he talking, <laughs> Thanks, mate. Talking <laughs> about yet another man in a funny suit, that man being Earl Mad Mad Muntz. Although he never, I don't know if he ever dressed up like this, but his caricature, his trademark, was a little stubby guy with a crooked pirate hat wearing a pair of red hot pants. And he was none other than Madman Earl Muntz. If you, if you grew up in the 60s and, for that matter, the early 70s in the Southern California area, you've had to have heard one of the Muntz stereo commercials recently. I went through a magazine, and there was the Muntz four-track car player yes i had one and i had one i had several tapes that went with it and uh they were like a strange nature's mistake because they destroyed each other in the process of eating each other uh the months four track tape system was created in the 60s actually uh earl madman months sold 300,000 of these four track car players in 1966 a couple years before that he released them but only the very rich in la had them frank sinatra had one in his uh buick riviera uh i know these were movie stars these are the greatest things in the world because it did away with reel to reel but it was still hi-fi quality stereo sound and i'm sure anyone who goes out to a flea market or a thrift shop can still find a cardboard box full of these tapes uh, the four track player came before the eight track uh, these were called stereo pack cartridges earl Muntz had the rights to 75,000 songs that he put on tape cassettes the problem he was very cheap so instead of using high quality like basf tape he bought the cheapest stuff that he could import in from the orient and these tapes would break, they would swell on a hot day sitting in your glove box, and when you'd go to put them in the player, it would gum up the player, and no player, no tapes, and that was the story of the early days of, of cartridge. Madman Munza, he even sold these stereo pack cartridges in through his own mail order club called the Book of the Months Club. <laughs> Uh, he was so enthused over his stereo pack that he put five units in his home, including the one with speakers in his swimming pool. And he said, it's amazing how well you can hear down here under the water. <laughs> and he'd send these very curvaceous models out all over Southern California. He even sent one out to uh, Vietnam. And he was handing these stereo players and cassettes out to the GIs. And uh, uh, this guy was a showman. The Pentagon turned him down because he offered to put his stereo cassette players in all the Jeeps in the American military, and they turned him down, of course. Another thing they just didn't want to worry about breaking down. Muntz had stores. You know, we have the electronic stores today, but if you were looking for a car stereo player, you had to go to a car stereo shop, and in, my, in L.A. it was the Muntz stereo shop. He uh, started those, and he'd pay his employees 50 bucks a month to buy white Ford Mustangs and just plastic. It was the early days of rap advertising. He'd bring his employees in. He'd pay them 50 bucks a month to drive around in Ford Mustangs that he would provide, and he says it makes them better employees. They're Muntsified. During one holiday, Madman had to buy ads to tell people to stay away from his store. The store, staffed with girls in skimpy Playboy outfits, was too crowded, and the police department threatened to shut him down if he didn't thin down the crowds. 
This guy was the true entrepreneur. The Munts Blue Light 8-track player was the thing to have in the late 60s if you wanted to be the cool guy driving around. The Munts Blue Light, you turn off all the dashboard lights and you just have a little blue light emanating from this player. And it was a girl magnet. I remember those. Smitty, what what kind of value do we have on players and actually the cassettes? They're still around. You still see them. They're still around, Mike. I think something like that is more of a niche collector type thing. That's nothing that's really, to my knowledge, being widely collected. The tape players, there's always people that collect all kinds of different uh, gizmos, and the 8-track players and the 4-track players certainly fall into that category. Probably not worth really a whole lot. The tapes themselves, probably the value there would be more on the labels themselves. If you have a collection of Tony Orlando and Don material or Herb Albert material or whatever, whoever the artist is, you might want to have one of these tapes to add to your collection. But it's more of a niche collectible, probably not worth a great deal, but definitely something that uh, you wouldn't want to throw out if you came across in a box of stuff at your next garage sale it was a very short-lived product because audio cassettes the small cassettes came out shortly after the the eight track and as i said they they were quite unreliable but it's car music being able to put your favorite album into uh, your car stereo system oh sure the greatest thing in the world it was an interim thing between you know the radio and between cassettes so mike thank you so much for that we thank appreciate you. it we want to give you our email and our website address one more time before we leave you our email address is galaxy moonbeam nightside at gmail.com our website is galaxy moonbeam nightside.com and remember we're on facebook Galaxy Moonbeam Nightsight is on Facebook. If you are a Facebook fan, drop by and friend us. Look at the pictures we have on our Facebook page. That's all the time we have for our show today. We sure thank you for joining us. We look forward to having you with us again next time. I'm Smitty. I'm Mike. And I'm Ian. And we'll talk to you next time. Take care, folks.